Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. I am bouncing off the walls with excitement because today we have the amazing Adrian Goldsworthy with us. He is a historian, lecturer, broadcaster and author and he's written historical books like Augustus, First Emperor of Rome, Hadrian's Wall and so much, so, so many others. He's also written novels like his Napoleonic War series and the Roman Britain series. But today we're going to be talking about his new book, which will be out later this week called Philip and Alexander, Kings and Conquerors. Welcome, Adrian. Hello, it's nice to be here. I am so, so incredibly excited to start talking about this. Um, I've read the book. It's awesome. Um, And I'm sure our listeners are going to love it too. But I was thinking, let's start off with a question. What actually made you write this incredible book? Uh, the answer is rather simple, and it, it wasn't my idea. The publishers came to me, rang up and said, would you do a book on Philip and Alexander? And if they'd asked me, would you do a book on Alexander, I probably would have said no, because I think there are plenty already, and it's it's quite well-trodden ground. But as soon as they said, do Philip together, so look at father and son and the whole process, I thought, well, there, there isn't really anything on that that's that's readable, that's accessible. And even in, in academic terms, you know, that it, it's... Um, it's not been covered. So it just struck me as a, as a good idea. You have to think in terms of something you're going to want to write because you know it, it'll take three or four years of your life. So you have to spend quite a lot of time. You've got to love it, really. And that was one where, as I say, I hadn't thought of it. But as the more I did, once they put the idea, I thought, yes, I can do this. So it's it's been fun for me because this is not a field I've written much on before. I suppose the closest I came was looking at Cleopatra's family and the Ptolemies, that obviously takes us back to Alexander for the Antony and Cleopatra book. But I'm, you know, at heart still, most of my writing has been on the Romans. So it's, it's been fun to go and look at something else that I haven't looked at so much since I was, well, a student, really, <laughs> or teaching sometimes. You know, as a junior lecturer, you end up teaching all sorts of things that you haven't actually done research on recently. So it's, it's been nice. It's been fun to do. So tell our listeners a little bit about Philip. Who was he and what was his early life like? It's striking that Philip has slipped from memory and he really figures in the story as the old one-eyed man limping from his wounds who, you know, when he's drunk and angry with Alexander, falls over when he's trying to attack him. And it's, you know, this is a man who can't even cross the floor and wants to conquer Asia. That joke, you get him, you know, that's how he appears in a couple of Alexander movies. 
And if people remember him at all, it's as this sort of adjunct to Alexander's story. And oh yeah, he did all these important things. He made it happen. He helped it, um, helped Alexander on his way, set him on course, but he's quickly dismissed. And that's the big problem in that Philip is very important in his own right. He's also, you know, we think of Philip's the old man, Alexander's the young dashing hero. But when Philip becomes king of Macedonia, he's only in his early 20s. He hasn't got all these scars, all these wounds. He's the young dashing butch hero. And he's inherited a kingdom that is being ripped apart by its neighbors that's had decades of instability, of civil war, of um, virtually no Macedonian king managing to die of natural causes. They all get killed one way or another in battle or more often murdered by people close to them. And this is a kingdom where Athens, the neighboring tribes and kingdoms of Thrace, Illyria, are taking lumps out of it all the time, dominating it. And this kid turns up with no prior record, really, of military achievement, of skill, and turns it round. And so that not only does he drive off all the invaders and all the predators, but he ends up as the man who dominates all of Greece and the lands to the north. So there's an incredible story there just in Philip's life that, that needs to be told. And you certainly need to understand that to understand Alexander, because the big thing to remember is all this happened really quickly. And there were plenty of people around when Alexander died who could remember life before Philip let alone before Alexander, who could remember a time when Macedonia was this weak, divided, unimportant place, and suddenly it's dominating most of the known world. And that was a very hard transition for everybody on all sides to, to comprehend, really, and to, to realise this had actually happened. So when you look at Philip, his, his early life rather brings home just how weak Macedonia was, because this is someone, he's the youngest of three brothers by one of um, an earlier king's wives. But again, we get this pattern where Macedonian kings take more than one wife simultaneously. So there, are, there tend to be a lot of the royal family around. So we know of another three brothers, half brothers, um, as far as we can tell. We don't know whether they're older, they're younger, why they are not preferred to Philip and his two older brothers. But Philip spends not only time as the young prince in waiting, but the odds are if either of his older brothers had survived, he would never have been king. But in fact, one gets killed by um, a palace conspiracy and the other one gets killed in battle. But Philip spends several years, around about three, as a hostage in Thebes, one of the great Greek cities, the great Greek city-states, so that, you know, that's, that's something unimaginable. Alexander was never a hostage, never a prisoner, and was never going to be. And had he had children, that wouldn't have happened to them, at least the foreign enemies. But Philip is someone who's brought up away from his kingdom and in the household of a Greek nobleman as a prisoner. And it's a very comfortable captivity. You know, he gets to hunt, he gets to train. And there are all sorts of um, academics like to believe that he learned all these wonderful things by watching the Thebans. You know, Thebes is on a roll at the time. It's the dominant city-state in, in Greece. It's just defeated the Spartans um, at the Battle of Leuctra. And he's supposed to look at the Thebans and their way of fighting and think, yeah, disciplined armies, that's a great idea. I'll go home and I'll do this. And maybe he did. But also maybe he came up with some of these ideas himself. You know, we have a great tendency. There's this very old fashioned traditional instinct to believe that people can only copy 
that you get one innovator and then everybody else copies the idea rather than similar situations lead to people coming up with similar solutions. So Philip's early life is a mark of Macedonian weakness, but there's also something else that's very striking in, and makes it different writing this book to say writing a book on Julius Caesar or Augustus or Mark Antony is that we actually know very, very little about family life, even in the royal family in Macedonia. So we have very few details about Philip's early years, but we can't go and fill those in as we can with Caesar, say, and thinking, well, a typical Roman aristocrat at this age is going to be learning this sort of thing. He's going to be instructed at home. Then he's going to go to a tutor. Then he's going to go to these levels of education. He's going to learn this. He's going to learn that. This is how the family behave. None of that really exists for the Macedonians. You know, there are very few details of that sort of thing. You get, there's a throwaway line, Philip's supposed to have, um, dismissed an officer for taking a hot bath and said that, well, that's a luxury that we Macedonians don't even allow to a woman in labour. Um, but that's, you know, you get this tiny, possibly, probably unreliable detail about family life and not much else. So Philip's early days and indeed those of Alexander are very much a mystery, but you get a sense of the changing fortunes of Macedonia through both their stories. So talk to us about how he did ascend the throne and how he secured it. Essentially, in one sense, he gets, un he gets lucky or his brother gets unlucky. His second brother has managed to overthrow the, the regent who's been dominating for a few years, is starting to fight against all these bigger, more powerful states and leaders that lived around Macedonia, takes the army off to fight against the Illyrians and the brother gets killed. So Philip inherits the remnants of an army and a kingdom, but it's after a major disaster. And there are two, probably three other claimants for the throne who are members of the royal family have equal title to it. Whilst brothers seem to have, at least in most cases, ascended to the throne on the basis of oldest first, in the wider family, that doesn't seem to matter at all. Basically, anybody who's an Argiad, anyone who's one of the Macedonian royal family can be king, which means that you're never really secure. And he gets threatened on all sides by these rivals who are backed by outside forces, giving them troops. So the Athenians are backing one, the Thracians are backing another. So he becomes king at a time when everyone would have looked and thought, well, you know, there's another Macedonian, a new king on the throne, but really who cares? It's only Macedonia. It doesn't matter. <laughs> um, but again, that's one of those leaps that you have to remind yourself of that because we're so used. We know what Philip went on to do, what Alexander went on to do. And there's always that great danger that you think it's inevitable. But really, Macedonia just didn't matter. And no one would have expected him to live more than a few years, let alone rebuild his kingdom in the way he does. So, you know, his first threat is to deal with these um, challengers. And then he's got to deal with the Illyrians, who have already claimed a large part of his territory, and take an army that's just been beaten. And you've got the survivors, the people who ran away the fastest, and anybody else you can raise and persuade them they can actually beat the people who've just killed one king and probably about half to a third of his army. So somehow he manages to do that. And you get a sign early on of just how energetic he is, but also that, that inspirational quality. He can persuade people. You know, um, the source is talking about him going around talking to the Macedonians, gathering them together, telling them they could win, convincing them they could win, and persuading him with this sort of almost willpower 
that, yes, it's worth a chance, let's go and fight again, and he manages to win. So you have these desperate battles early on when any mistake, and it's all over, and Macedonia's back to normal, chaos, civil war, all of those things. Each test is as important as the last one. He keeps on passing, he keeps on surviving, till you get to the point where feel more secure. So Philip's inherited basically chaos. Um, he's fighting left, right and centre. But in the meantime, he actually overhauls all of his armies, doesn't he? I mean, how does he manage to do that? It's a difficult process to, to track, really, because, again, we're dealing with very poor source information. And there are little bits, little snippets that tell us that earlier Macedonian kings had tried this and tried that. We don't quite know when it happened. The big thing to remember is that in Greece proper, the dominant type of soldier in land battles was the Greek hoplite. You know, this heavily armored man who fought in most of the time in close formation in a phalanx. And it had grown from this citizen idea to, to have the right to vote. You have to be willing to fight for your state um, in battle and risk life and limb. And it was part of that whole Greek culture, the culture of the gymnasium, where you don't simply exercise to get fit, but you exercise amidst all your peers, amidst the other people with enough leisure time to go and spend hours training and doing this. So it's, it's very much a sort of bonding process and a competitive environment where you've got to prove you're the best citizen, you're the best fighter, you're the best athlete. But you require a hoplite class, a sort of reasonably prosperous Farmers who have enough money to have the slaves that they don't have to spend all their time actually working. So they've moved well beyond subsistence level. They own enough that they can actually support themselves to go off for a few weeks or a few months every year and fight a war if necessary, to have the equipment, to have the leisure time to train. Macedonia just doesn't have that class at all. It's got a nobility who seem to own most of the land and it's got peasant farmers, but not people who can afford to spend their lives training for war. So traditionally, Macedonia has had quite good cavalrymen that come from the aristocracy who've again got the wealth to have the leisure. They can spend time riding, hunting on horseback, training for war, this sort of thing. But you haven't got good infantry. You haven't got, all you've got are lots of conscripted peasants who are told to, to turn up and do their best, but nobody really can be bothered to train them. They can't afford their own equipment and the state isn't that inclined to supply them with it. Philip marks a, a key stage in a process that creates this, this Macedonian infantry that combines with the cavalry to create a very balanced but a very efficient army. The biggest, the most obvious innovation he introduces, which probably comes in quite early, is instead of using a, a spear of seven, eight feet long that you hold in one hand and you jab over this big hoplite shield, he gives his men two-handed pikes, the, the, the famous sarissa, that might be as long as 16, 18 feet. And the whole point of a pikeman is it's not you've got to stand very close together. It's all about formation because one man with this great long pole isn't going to be terribly maneuverable. People are going to be able to get around him easily. You need lots of them. You need to pre present a row of pike heads to the enemy. And then the rank behind you presents another row that's a few feet back from the first row of, 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 of spearheads so that if the enemy gets past those, if he can cut those through, he's still got a long time to get to you. A lot of the tactic is actually about keeping the enemy far away and putting pressure on them. But it's 
whilst in one sense, if you want to do anything clever with them, as Philip and Alexander will do later, pikemen need to be very, very well drilled to change formation, to keep in order if they're moving over long areas of ground. But at a basic level, it's fairly simple. If you can group them all together and they stay in a sort of reasonably neat huddle, then as long as the enemy's to the front, it's hard for the enemy to get to them whilst the pikemen can jab at these people from some distance. So in a sense, it's, it's a sort of cheaper option. They don't need the armor. They don't need all the equipment. They don't at first need that much training. They just need the confidence to stay there, stay in a group, because if a few start running, then the whole thing's going to fall apart and you end up with individuals and pikemen aren't very good at that. So early on, what I suspect you get with Philip is it's making the best of the material he's got for his army and forming them up. And he's able to defeat the Illyrians in battle, probably because the Illyrians aren't really expecting the Macedonians to fight that well. And Philip has a slight advantage in cavalry that he uses. He also, a prominent role is played by Philip and presumably the sort of royal bodyguard of infantry who are the closest you've got to proper hoplites. They are well-equipped, they are well-trained. They do most of the really aggressive stuff. And then gradually, there is a tendency when we study ancient armies to think very much in terms of technology and tactics. It's all about the weapons, it's all about the equipment, which is important, but there's also the psychological element. And how do you inspire? How do you convince these people when they turn up to a battle that they're going to win? And because they're going to win, they're probably going to survive. Because the best way to get killed in an ancient battle is to turn run, because that's when most of the casualties occur. And Philip is a great one, as Alexander will be, for pursuing the enemy. Once you've broken their battle line, once they start streaming away, kill as many of them as you possibly can in the next few hours. Chase them down with your cavalry, because that means you shouldn't have to fight them again, at least not for a long time. And you will frighten them, you will dominate them, and you will also kill many of them when it's easiest for you to do it. So Philip, it's partly this inspirational role he plays of convincing the Macedonians they can actually turn up on a battle, they can go with Philip in charge, and they will win. And that's why a few years later, when for the first time Philip fights a proper Greek army in the Sacred War and loses, he gets outmaneuvered, he's outthought, the enemy ambush him and break the phal his phalanx up and, and rout it, that to recover from that, to get, keep the army together and then reform and go back the next year and actually win is a major achievement. He carries out so many campaigns, um, too many for us to talk about in detail today. But which one do you think really is the turning point for Macedonia? It's very hard to say. I think it's, we tend to focus on battles and pitch battles. They're good, they're dramatic. But if you think Alexander really only fights four battles in, in his campaigns. And some of those, you know, um, the River Granicus is relatively small. Mm -hmm. um, and Philip fights maybe four as, as well in his reign. So battles aren't actually that common. You know, we focus on them, but the pitch yeah. battle between massed armies is quite rare. What both of them spend most of their time doing are two other things. And it's campaigning against these more loosely organized tribes rather than the great um, Greek city-states. It's against the Thracians, the Illyrians, and then subsequently all the people on the way out there to India that Alexander keeps encountering. But it's also sieges. The biggest thing that Philip does is work out how to capture cities, 
because up until then in Greek warfare, that's been exceptionally difficult and sieges can take years and often fail because the hoplite, again, the hoplite ideal doesn't really allow you to develop engineering and these things you need, but also the willingness to take casualties. Attacking a city tends to be dangerous. And if you think Philip loses his eye during a siege, Alexander nearly gets killed when he's um, shot through the lung with an arrow, uh, again, during an assault on a, a walled town. And most of his other wounds occur in the context of sieges, not in terms of, of pitched battle. So it's that development, and it's partly technological. It's partly because Philip will recruit engineers from all around the Greek world and wider and pay them a salary to go and think of good ways of capturing cities, of developing siege engines, and be there to supervise um, all the, the siege works and the assaults when they occur. But it doesn't, you know, it's, it's very hard. It isn't a, an easy process. They don't suddenly say, yeah, fine, we can do this. We can capture anywhere with a wall. We'll get in, no problem at all. Um, the sieges are still difficult, and both Philip and Alexander do occasionally fail in a siege or begin a process, realize this place is actually going to be hard to take, so leave somebody to blockade it and move away. And, but it's, that's the biggest difference because it means that cities up until then could avoid battle, hide behind their walls and think, well, we'll probably be safe. It's going to take them years to blockade us. With Philip, it's a matter of months or sometimes even weeks. And it's as he starts to take more communities and either turn them into um, cities that are subordinate to him or eradicate them as political entities, that he can control more and more ground. So the war is not just, I win a battle and maybe next year I have to go and win it again or in 10 years time. It's I start to control this territory permanently. And that makes the biggest difference to his war making. It's, it has a much more permanent outcome. But the other thing to say is that going back to this, what they spend their time doing, all our sources concentrate not just on the big battles, but relations with the Greeks. So we hear far more about Philip when he's dealing with Athens more than anyone else. Because again, you know, it's, we like to deceive ourselves that we, we know a lot about Greek culture. But in the end, the vast bulk of our evidence, particularly from literature, comes is written by aristocratic men in, in Athens. And, you know, Athens wasn't a typical city. The aristocracy wasn't even typical of the city. Um, but it means that when things are happening elsewhere, they just don't talk about it. So all the years that Philip spends slogging and fighting the Thracians, the Illyrians, the Paeonians, all other groups up there, is scarcely reported. You know, there are years where we don't even know where Philip is and what he's doing. Mm because it didn't matter to Athens. You know, Demosthenes isn't going to tell us, um, even the, the historian, that it's not likely to filter through. You know, Alexander, yes, he goes and um, besieges and captures Thebes year after he's become king, but he's actually, before that, been campaigning in the Balkans and in Thrace and in that area. So it's he's, again, doing the same thing. He's going off to fight peoples who, because they don't write anything down themselves, they haven't left their stories we can sometimes just dismiss as, oh, yeah, it's just a few tribes up there. You know, those aren't the real threat. Well, from the resources and the time and the danger involved, both of these kings spend far more time dealing with those than they do with, with organized kingdoms and city-states. So what do you think was Philip's biggest military mistake? That, again, one of the hardest things to tell about all of Philip's campaign comes back to the, the, the point I was just making, that so much of his activity occurs 
out of sight of Athens, or at least in areas Athens didn't care. Obviously, his biggest battlefield defeat is the, the first battle in um, 353, in the Sacred War, where his army runs away and he is lured into an ambush. And it's one of those, it's, frankly, from the, the limited sources we've got, it's almost a Hollywood battle because his army is lured to attack and the enemy have concealed catapults of all things up on the hills, the high ground, and they suddenly sort of pull off all the camouflage and lob stones down on the phalanx and then the army turns around and fights the Macedonians who probably run away. And it's the sort of very simplified battle. You know, the only thing you wouldn't get, if it was Hollywood, the, the catapults would be firing missiles that were on fire. But other yeah. than that, it's a, sort of, it's, it's a very crude. So, but what's interesting is that afterwards, Philip's supposed to have said, you know, I didn't run away. I was like a ram. I came back so I could charge forward and butt harder. He does recover from that. That's clearly his most serious battlefield defeat. But he recovers. He goes back the next year and he wins an overwhelming victory and destroys the enemy army. Though he doesn't then go on for quite a long time to complete the sacred wars he possibly could have done, which... Um, but there's other, I mean, later on, near the end of his life, before he goes down to um, the big confrontation with the Greeks in Chironea, you have this expedition up to Scythia and to fight one of the kings of the Scythians. And it seems to be all terribly well organized, reminiscent a little bit of um, fighting on the American plains in the 19th century, where I suspect, and this is only a guess, but from the evidence, the Scythians were horsemen they were nomads they were usually very hard to catch but probably not in winter when they had to camp when they couldn't move and i suspect philip attacks then with a small force surprises them captures a huge amount of captains captives sorry loads of horses for breeding it's very useful when he's planning this big war you know your cavalry your carts all of these things need animals but on the way back he sort of meanders around um, trying to put on a display of force amongst other tribes and ends up losing most of the plunder because his army's ambushed because it looks as if he's almost got more captives than he's got soldiers. So there are sometimes moments where, like any commander, he thinks he can do whatever he likes and he doesn't do things carefully. And he just thinks that everyone's so frightened that, yeah, he can just get away with that. They'll be, be intimidated. And he's clearly wrong. This is where he probably takes the serious leg wound that um, made him limp. And, you know, there's talk of a, a spear going through his leg and into the horse um, he was riding. Um, and again, it's, it's one aspect of both Philip and Alexander. Everything depended on the king, that person. And the way they lead puts them at very high risk. And they both get away with it. But if they hadn't, if that blow had been slightly stronger, slightly better aimed, just pure chance, either of them could have died or been serious so seriously crippled that they couldn't really function as king far earlier and that's that would have been a problem for philip until alexander was old enough to succeed him which by this time yeah it's probably okay he would in fact do so in a couple of years time but especially for alexander as he goes on there's just this they're rolling the dice all the time and the odds are in their favor but it's not certain and if they if philip had lost if alexander had lost then Macedonia could easily have fallen apart again, particularly in, the, in Philip's early years. So he's always taking that risk. But on the other hand, it's very hard to see what else he could have done. So I'm never one to go and criticize commanders in any period of history and say, oh, well, you know, they made this mistake, they did that, what they should have done is this, that, and the other. 
Real life is far more difficult than that. And for me, sitting in my office and comfortable armchair, just saying, yeah, I could have won this war far better than anyone else. You know, it's, it's <laughs> an honor. Um, these people were there. They had limited information. They had lim very limited resources, difficult, and things. They were also, they weren't the only actor in these stories. Lots of other people were doing things. Obviously, the enemy who got ideas of their own, but also amongst their own people. And you never know the degree of control that they really had. So um, I think there are signs where both Philip and Alexander get careless, get used, so used to winning that they think they can do anything. And that's, that's often true in history. But again, they're also very lucky. And the key thing is neither of them ever suffers a truly crushing defeat that they cannot recover from. Mm. And that's a mark of the talent. It's also a mark of just how good this army that Philip creates and Alexander Holmes has become. You know, this is the best in the world. And any sort of military revolution like that, it tends to be a while before other people catch up and suddenly winning isn't quite so easy. So the, all of this period is going through that stage where the Macedonians are more likely to win than not. But that doesn't mean it's it's easy all the time. It doesn't mean that there isn't room for making a real foul up of it. And, there, you know, there are lots of situations where you think this could easily have gone a different way. So how does how does his downfall come about? With Philip, he seems to have won everything. You know, again, we'll 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 get Delphi in. Um, come hell or high water he's gone <laughs> he's planning this persian expedition he's sent the advance guard he goes or sends the oracle at delphi and um you know gets the usual cryptic utterance of wreathed is the bull the sacrificial bull and there is one who will smite him which he sees as yep you know darius the king of persia is waiting there i'm the man who's going to come along and sacrifice him kill him take the thing over take over his empire in fact with hindsight as with all these omens everybody says no it's actually philip who's about to die. Um, the murder, like a lot of murders with the Macedonian family, appears to start with a personal grievance. You have um, the assassin is a man called Pausanias, who's had been a rival. It's all very confused. It's difficult to know the details. Um, but the hints we get from fragments of Aristotle, who did know Philip and did know Alexander, suggest that there's, there's at least some truth in the sort of the romantic, if rather grimly romantic story, that this chap Pausanias had at one time been one of Philip's favourites and lovers, and then was supplanted by another Pausanias in Philip's affections. The first Pausanias, does get confusing, mocks the other one. The other one kill, get, dies in battle to prove his courage because he's been slandered. Um, and then friends of the man who dies choose in later years as their star rises, a chap called Attalus, um, whose niece, probably, and my complication about the precise relationship in the family, becomes Philip's um, wife in um, just near the end of his life. He decides to get revenge on the original Pausanias and gets him drunk at a party, and then he and his fellow guests beat him up, possibly rape him, hand him over to the, the slaves, the muleteers, who then gang rape him. And then when Pausanias goes to Philip, reasonably enough, complaining about all of this, he's made a royal bodyguard, but Attalus is not punished in any way, and is in fact sent as one of the two commanders of the advance guard to Asia Minor. 
and that uh, Pausanias is supposed to have brooded upon this, traditions claiming that um, Olympias, Alexander's mother, one of Philip's other wives, and Alexander encourage his sense of grievance. And that when Philip has all the representatives of the Greek states and from wider afield gathered to um, witness the marriage of his daughter, Cleopatra, to um, the king of Epirus, Alexander of Epirus, you know, Philip's about to m march into the theatre and um, to the acclamation of all, he has one of the Alexanders, his son and his um, new son-in-law on either side of him, but then sends them on. And then one of these bodyguards, the only people who are standing there with their javelins, runs out, runs up to the king, produces a dagger that he'd concealed, stabs Philip, the wounds almost immediately fatal, he dies within moments, and runs off, is trips over on a vine route, is killed by the other bodyguards before he can say anything or before he can escape. And then, of course, you have all the rumours of, you know, this is desperately convenient for Alexander. Suddenly he becomes king. He's in his early 20s. He's there ready to spring into action. He's got the perfect army set up. He's got the perfect situation to go and conquer Persia. All of that is waiting to happen. And... Philip's out the way. If Philip had been there, we don't know whether he would have taken Alexander with him on his campaigns, but certainly Philip would be getting most of the credit, not Alexander. So the Alexander story to get going has to have Philip out of the way. So it's obviously convenient for him. There's the long tradition that Olympias and Philip had grown to loathe each other after initial love and that Alexander was suspicious of being supplanted. You can argue it almost any way you want. On the one hand, Philip doesn't have, as far as we can tell, there's few rumours, an alternative to Alexander as heir at the moment. But then Philip's only in his 40s. He wasn't expecting to die. He doesn't need an heir as far as he's concerned. You know, he's got Alexander who's useful, who's clearly being marked out in this way. But Philip could live on. His family, if they don't die violently, tend to live to very old age. So Philip's got plenty of time to have more children, change his mind about Alexander. Alexander might get himself killed or might um, get into disgrace, into disfavor, whatever it may be. So that Philip is murdered and that Pausanias does it, those are clear. And it's pretty certain that Pausanias did have this very strong personal motive, that you had this you know, deeply damaged individual who was seeking some sort of revenge, some sort of um, penalty, because Philip hadn't protected him. You know, he, A, he can't murder the man he holds responsible because the man's no longer in Macedonia, but there's a sense of not just as a king, but as a former lover, Philip hasn't dealt with him fairly, hasn't done right by him. And a lot of the assassinations and the attempted assassinations in of Macedonian kings involve these very sort of personal offences against honour, and against somebody's status and reputation, you haven't treated me properly, you haven't treated me right, therefore it's bad enough, I'm going to kill you. How much politics there was behind it, whether there is a plot that's wider than that, whether Pausanias is, is a pawn in somebody else's game, conscious or unconscious of that, we can't say, we simply can't say one way or the other. Um, it, it is very convenient for Alexander. Alexander acts very quickly, but then on the other hand, he's dead. Uh, you know, Philip is dead. What do you do? 
So you can't just hang around and think, oh, I'll wait and see how things develop. If you want to be his successor, and if you're not going to be his successor, you're probably going to get killed by whoever chooses to become his successor, you have to act fast. So um, backed by senior members of Philip's court, and again, they're all old enough to have lived through regicide and changes of regime before, so it's not new to them. You know, this the Macedonians have dealt with kings dying suddenly, often violently, and suddenly we need to find a new one. I want to make sure that the new one favours me and that I will do well, my family will do well under him. So all of that is going on, but the real truth behind it was probably as obscure then as it is now. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So after the death of Philip, his son ascends to the throne to Alexander III, or as he's better known, Alexander the Great, known as the world's, one of the world's greatest leaders. He actually manages to conquer Persia, um, unlike his father, who obviously didn't finish his campaign because he was murdered. How does Alexander manage to succeed in something so great? So could you give us a brief overview of the Persia campaign? It's obviously a, a very big story and a very dramatic story. You know, Alexander spends best part of two years, well, about a year and a half, still in Greece and in Macedonia, securing his um, power, because a lot of people think, right, Philip's dead. We don't know anything about this young king. He's got no military record to speak of. You know, he's fought a little bit the last few years, but he's not Philip. We've been frightened of Philip. We know that in the past, when a Macedonian king dies, the kingdom tends to collapse and tear itself apart in civil war. So lots of Greeks and other neighbours clearly expected that. Alexander was the unknown quantity. You know, there's this great army up there, but will Alexander be able to lead it as effectively as Philip has? And the lesson very quickly that they learned the hard way in those 18 months or so is that, yes, Alexander can do this. Um, he's probably learning on the job. You know, it, it helps when you take over a team that's really well practiced. You've got all of Philip's officers. This is very much, and it will be for years to come, Philip's army and Philip's creation. The vast majority of its commanders, let alone the soldiers, are people who've learned to win under Philip and are confident of winning under Philip. And it takes a while and a lot of personal example by Alexander for him to win their confidence that they will also win with Alexander. So that's one of the reasons why he's particularly um, spectacular in his style of leadership. You know, he wants to be in front. He wants to do everything. He wants to be seen. 
He wants to share all the dangers, even do more than other people. There's also an impatience about Alexander that's maybe a reflection of his age, um, but also his personality. And this, you know, this you get this in the story that when he he sends it or goes to Delphi to get um, the oracle's view on what will happen when he attacks Persia, and according to the story Plutarch tells us, well, the priestess isn't giving out any answers, the, you know, the oracle isn't going to reveal anything on that day, but Alexander grabs the Pythian priestess, drags her around, manhandles her, and she, he won't let go until she yells at him, you're invincible, my son, at uh, which point he decides, that's the oracle, yep, yeah, I'll have that one, that's a cracking one, and off he goes, saying, thanks, ma'am, and, and you know, um, I'm off to war. The problem with Alexander is that he, it is such a spectacular story, and these conquests are so spectacular story that from the very start, it was being embellished. You know, the sort of things that people felt Alexander should have done, Alexander, sh um, you know, this is, this is the story I'd like to have. All these tales start to build up very quickly, helped by the fact that Alexander has, you know, a, an active propaganda machine that's telling the story his way, and he's emphasizing, um, you know, Aristotle's nephew Callisthenes is there um, writing the sort of the early reports of the, the campaigns that will follow. And he puts in all these details about how, you know, omens showing that Alexander is going to win, that the gods favor him, all of these things that will build on to going to um, the, the oracle at Siwa um, off to the west of Egypt and, um, you know, being recognized the son of Zeus Ammon, all this sort of thing. So there's there's lots where it's very hard to know um, what really happened and how much of this is myth. And you can look at more recent events. I mean, um, there's more and more first-hand evidence of the Battle of Waterloo and that campaign being published in, in recent years. And it's very interesting looking at the dates of letters people are writing and see how stories grow. Somebody starts passing on a rumor and then within 20 years, that becomes part of the official story, even though it probably didn't happen. We've got 23 centuries to deal with where all these stories have been added. And given that nearly all the main accounts are written in the Roman period, 400 plus years after Alexander's death, an awful lot had been added on to make the story as people felt it should be, to make it more dramatic. So we have to be careful. But the bare bones are that Alexander led his army across the, the Dardanelles Strait from the Gallipoli Peninsula to land in what's now you know, northern Turkey, Asia Minor, and join the advance guard that was already there that had been pressed back into a small case. The Persian Empire is huge. Because of that, it tends to react slowly. It takes a long time. It also probably was thinking at the start, well, Philip's dead. We don't have to worry about some kid on the throne. You know. And Greek armies, several had turned up and attacked Persia in the last generation or two, and they'd looted and they'd attacked some cities and they'd won some battles in Asia Minor, but they never really got much further. These were basically sort of big raids before they get, got bored. It's extremely unlikely that for at least a couple of years that the Persian king, who himself hadn't long been on the throne, and you know Darius, he wasn't secure, probably didn't take Alexander and the Macedonian threat that seriously. You know, he may well have had other problems with which to deal that kept him busy. Alexander starts to shock him by he wins the first battle when he encounters the local satraps at the river Granicus. And you get, you get the pattern in the accounts of this battle that will, will follow us all the way through, where it starts off with great armies maneuvering and deployment. But as the narrative goes on in the battle, it narrows down to what Alexander is doing. 
and leading cavalry charges at the head of um, the Royal Squadron of the, the Companion Cavalry. And at Granicus, he nearly gets killed. Um, you know, he's saved by Clytus the Black, a man that Alexander will later murder in a rage, um, who chops the arm off a Persian who is just about to cut down the back of Alexander's head. So you get all, again, these elements of the personal detail, the very heroic, the sort of almost Homeric element where Alexander's charging around like Achilles, the, the man he claimed as an ancestor, the great hero of the Trojan Wars. But you also see in these campaigns, there's, it's reckless, it's bold, but it's calculated recklessness. You know, Alexander gets every advantage he possibly can, then throws caution to the wind and attacks. And there are methodical elements. You know, supplying and feeding his men are one of the biggest priorities throughout the campaign, particularly at the beginning, before he's gathered momentum. So you get sieges of cities, but you also get him bypassing cities he, can't, he thinks he can't take. But he's starting to do what Philip has done in Europe before of not just winning battles, but taking places by siege, by storm, and seizing territory permanently, which makes it much harder for the other side to counterattack and regain ground. So you have this, you know, Granicus is the first of the three big battles in which the Persians are defeated. The other two are much larger at Issus and Galgamila. But within this, all this time, Alexander will spend seven months besieging Tyre, um, the Phoenician city. You know, he'll spend two more months soon after that besieging Gaza. Most of his time is, spelt, is spent in rapid marches, in raids, in sieges, and the battles are rare, even though they're very important. So Alexander manages to um, win and keep on winning. You have the first confrontation with Darius at the Battle of Issus, which Alexander wins, even though he's been outmaneuvered probably by chance. These armies are fairly clumsy. They don't have long-range intelligence. They don't really know where the other one is half the time. They blunder around until they find each other. But when they do find them, Alexander copes better with the chaos than Darius and the Persians do. To Gaugamila, where he'll win later on, and he will defeat Darius on ground of his own choosing. And from then on, it's, it's you know, there isn't really any coming back for Darius, though he will try, but he will eventually be um, murdered by some of his own leaders who start to have ambitions of their own. So it's a great epic in a sense, and it is fight after fight and siege after siege and battle after battle. But also a lot of communities decide that these Macedonians are big, they're scary, they're strong, and the Persians are now weak, let's just change sides. And, you know, there's an interesting fragment of a Babylonian record that begins, and it's basically just a, a calendar largely based on, you know, movements of the stars and this sort of thing, recording significant details like that, that begins talking about problems in the kings, meaning Darius's army, and by the end of it, a few weeks later, and it's Alexander, king of kings, enters Babylon. So, you know, they, they just transition. Many people, the Persians are just the latest in the overlords of this wider area, you know, the succession of empires that come along. And you can actually see the Macedonians rather like the Persians. There are fringe people from the edge of the Persian Empire or the Persian sphere of influence who suddenly get a couple of strong war leaders in a great army and overthrow the existing dynasty and make themselves a new dynasty. You know, we, it's very easy for us to see this as a sort of Greek versus Persian, East and West confrontation. But in a sense, this is almost business as usual in this succession of empires in that area in the Middle East. And, you know, Philip and Alexander, they're just the latest in these, these warlords who 
for a while are strong and are able to make themselves the new established dynasty of their own. So it's it's dramatic, it's um, huge in scale, and the distances are far bigger than anything Philip's done. But actually, the way Alexander goes about this is very much business as usual for Philip and his army. You know, they fight in the same way, they maneuver in the same way, they deal politically in the same way, and they want to convince people to defect to them. They want to treat communities well enough that they will think, yeah, it's better to be loyal to Alexander, pay him a bit of tax and a bit of tribute and admit him as king than it is to die fighting against him when he's going to win here anyway and the per- Darius isn't strong enough to save us. So a lot of people think very pragmatically about this and simply change sides. I want to bring in something very briefly because everybody knows I love Pompeii. I do. <laughs> I have no shame in loving Pompeii. But uh, House of the Fawn, again, my favourite house. I don't care what anyone thinks. This is my favourite house. And yeah, it is the best one. And that obviously beautiful, beautiful mosaic that was found showing Alexander defeating Darius III. Please tell me you love this mosaic as much as I do. (laughs) Well, it is nice. I mean, it it is one of those striking images of the ancient world. What would be truly, truly lovely would be to have the the painting on which it was based, you know, the original. Um, Because you have to wonder about, you know, this is the best portrait in many ways you've got of Alexander but again it's it's made centuries later but it's based on an earlier one and all the the stuff in the sources about you know Alexander is fair-haired and later on you have Ptolemies and other uh, rulers scattering gold dust in their their fair hair to make it fairer um you know when you're trying to answer basic question of what did Alexander look like what color hair did he have he's basically got a sort of mid-brownish, quite darkish hair on the mosaic. Now, is that because the colour has faded? Or is it because the sort of Hollywood idea where, um, whether it's Richard Burton or, um, oh gosh, who was in the Oliver Stone one? Um, No, name escapes me. Um, They're both very sort of rich peroxide blondes that are almost dazzling. Um, Was Alexander just not black-haired. Is that what our sources mean by fair? You know, it's not Mediterranean dark, it's slightly lighter. Or was he a sort of semi-Scandinavian? Um, very hard to say because the, the tomb paintings from Begina suggest that the Macedonians have a huge variety of different complexions and hair colouring. It's interesting how different people can see different things from it. I mean, you've got one, uh, Ernst Badian, a, a very eminent scholar, wrote an article claiming that Actually, the artist of that mosaic sympathizes more with Darius, who sort of, you know, is the tragic um, figure in it being, rather than the savage, wild-eyed Alexander. But I think all of that is so subjective. Um, It's assuming that ancient audiences would see things exactly as we would like to see them. And to be honest, it just looks as if this is, you know, this is Alexander the hero doing his, his frightening stuff. But because the artist is a good one, you also, it isn't simple, you know, you have sympathy. There is the tragic um, loser as well as the heroic victor. But it is, I mean, it, it's, it is one of those, those striking images. It's not on the cover of the book just because everybody else has used it, but it was, I think, my first suggestion. <laughs> Could we have that? But I, I mean, I'm one of these people as well that uh, if I could ever have my walls painted in Pompeii style. I think it would be really rather nice to live that way, but I don't think there's anybody around still doing it. And uh, when I once did some some filming where we were on a set to look like a room from Pompeii, it had been done marvellously, but only to be seen from a distance. So if you walked up close to it, it was all rather blurred, and that was a bit disappointing. 
Um, uh-huh. And I added to my disappointment by leaning on a pillow that then turned out to be polystyrene and nearly fell over. So, <laughs> but it looked real. I mean, that was the, that's the striking thing how film film sets can do this. They can make everything look look marvelous. You've just got to be very careful what you touch or what you how closely you look. Um. <laughs> Sorry, I've just got this. I've got to get this image out of my mind. Um, so <clears throat> Alexander dies young, and he leaves behind this amazing legacy. So do we know what actually happened to him? Because there are quite a few different versions of what and how he died. He died, and um, I think at this distance, the probability is it's natural causes. Um, None of the ancient sources provide a very clear indication in a plausible way of the murder in that, you know, there wasn't any doubt about Philip. Philip was stabbed to death. Everybody could see it. This was murder. Um, With Alexander, he is ill and he doesn't recover. Um, There had been times in Philip's life where rumours had circulated that he'd fallen in and died. You know, Demosthenes celebrates more than once. And a lot of key figures in the ancient world, I mean, the, the Emperor Augustus, nearly always in his, his first half of his life seems to be on the verge of keeling over, you know, gives his signet ring to people, all this sort of thing. The ancient world people, as perhaps we're learning to, to our cost at the moment, you know, disease could take people who appear to be healthy in other respects. Alexander um, has taken a lot of injuries in this, the course of this campaign. You know, he's nearly died lots of times. On the other hand, there isn't a good case to be made as sometimes people have tried in the past that the arrow wound he got in um, in India crippled him, you know, made it difficult for him to breathe, to ride a horse. Well, he seems to do all of those things without any trouble. So it probably is a less serious wound than sometimes people have claimed. Um, on the other hand, early on in the campaign, um, when he was near Tarsus, Alexander fell ill and was expected to die. You know, people, um, Harpalus, one of his own old friends and the person in charge of the royal treasury, fled with a large amount of money, presumably thinking that Alexander was on his way out and his friends might not be that favoured by whoever takes over. So the odds are that he just died. Um, Now, from the ancient world onwards, there was controversy about, you know, why didn't Alexander father a son? before he set off for this expedition. He's supposed to have been advised to do this by some of his senior generals. Even if he had, even if he'd married almost as soon as he became king and his wife had got pregnant and had born a boy and the child had survived, it would still only have been a teenager. The odds are of someone 12, 13, 14 even being able to take over are pretty slim. And one of the odd things is that Philip really is the first of his family not to produce loads and loads of of spare children. And it's it's partly a sign that the royal family have been killing each other off for so long that there aren't many other other candidates around. Um, So the probability is that Alexander just dies, and this results in a breakup of his empire as without a clear adult or capable heir, because Philip's other son, Alexander's half-brother, is mentally or physically incapable or possibly both and though he becomes king he's never more than a figurehead and alexander's uh, one of his wives roxanne is pregnant at the time of his death and although the the child to be to be born is turns out to be a boy um and is made king again you know 
it, it, it's no more than a figurehead and he's, he's killed before he can actually become an active player in this. Um, one of Alexander's illegitimate children will eventually be killed as well, um, just at the time when he gets old enough to be possibly considered as, as ruler. Um, it's, it's so hard to know. I think it is probably just chance. Alexander simply dies. Um, and then it breaks up because there is no clear air and you have an awful lot of very ambitious individuals thinking, well, if there's no obvious king, why not me? And the empire will break up. But although territory is lost in India and in the East, um, most of Alexander's empire survives under Hellenistic um, rule, rule by some of his successors for generations, even Bactria, you know, parts of modern day Afghanistan, the Greek influence there is, is strong for generations, even if it isn't always, sometimes it's part of the Seleucid Empire, sometimes it isn't. Um, you know, Alexander was still young. He's only in his early 30s. He could well have gone on to do far more. He certainly wasn't going to stop. You know, Arian's comment about whatever his ambitions were, they would have been on a grand scale, is surely true. And while many of his commanders were like a lot of his soldiers were clearly fed up, you know, they were exhausted by all of this. Philip had given them some breaks in campaigning. And anyway, when the campaigns had been fought, they were nearer home. Alexander has taken them so far away from home that, and not stopped at all. You know, there are very few lulls in the campaigning until the very end. And even then he's preparing for this big expedition to Arabia. He's, you know, there's this talk of expeditions to Carthage, conquering North Africa, you know, maybe even Italy, the Romans certainly later on, obviously considered themselves, well, they, we were the sort of people that Alexander must have attacked because we were so important even at that stage. But it's, it all becomes conjecture. And the same, the various conspiracy theories that he's murdered and who it might have been, none are impossible, but there isn't good evidence to support any of them at all. And it is probably just, as, as so often is the case in history and real life, it, it's, it's chance is more, far more common than, than organised conspiracy. Adrian? That was amazing. Thank you so much. But before we do go, please tell our listeners where they can find your book and exactly when it's out. Right. Alexander is officially released on, or Philip and Alexander, Kings and Conquerors, I think is the full title. I've lost track. On the 3rd of September in Britain. And then it's at the beginning of October in the United States. And they are ever so slightly different edits in the two books. So it is essentially, it's 99 percent the same book but the american one has slightly different edit and american spellings and a slightly different layout but basically the two books are identical so don't 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 buy two for the sake of it as sometimes people have done with, with different editions or different titles of the same book um and then email me and complain um, but it's it is essentially <laughs> the same book that's why they're a slightly different length because of different formatting and um font size and all this sort of thing but it, it is the same book both in britain and america and well, several translations be out around about the same time or fairly soon as well. Amazing. That was so brilliant. Thank you so much for coming to talk to us about Philip because we don't hear enough about him. And then obviously the great Alexander. Thanks for inviting me. Join us tomorrow when Charlie White will be with us to talk all about Marilyn Monroe. We've wanted to do some Hollywood history for a while and she gives us a fantastic biographical look at Marilyn Monroe. We're calling it the life of Marilyn Monroe because we're not going to dwell on all the conspiracy theories and all the nonsense surrounding her death. We're just going to celebrate what an inspirational woman she has turned out to be.
don't forget you can become a patron of history hack for as little as a dollar a month just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com it will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus and we would really appreciate it as we would love to do so mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for mother's day than whole foods market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market 